This is God's word, Acts 10, 1 through 20. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him at fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Acts 10:34-48. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. 
The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God of grace, as we come into this room today, we come from different places, different experiences, different stories. For some people this morning is, a, um, is right in the middle of some intense times, whether that be wounds, whether that be um, unexpected events that are happening that seem overwhelming. Some of us come and we're just full of questions. We don't claim at all to have anything figured out and we're just, we're just so hopeful that a place like this could be a safe place to have questions and to take our time incrementally, one micro step at a time, figure things out. And others of us come with joy or thanksgiving for something that was long awaited for. Some of us might be in the middle of longing and praying for something that seems impossible and others of us might be on the other side of it giving thanks to you. And from all these different places, we sit in this room and we are all more of a mess than we care to admit, more broken than we want the people here to know. And we come covering up, we come not wanting our vulnerability to be exposed. And yet the story we're entering into and availing ourselves to this morning is that you became vulnerable and exposed for us that you love to move towards broken, wounded, imperfect lives and bring your grace and bring us home and heal us and make us acceptable when we're not. We thank you for this and ask that you speak through that kind of grace now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Peter, in this story, has been uh, brought into the house of someone that he didn't expect. In fact, it was full of people that he had given himself emotional permission, basically, to write off. And we all have a little bit of that. I'm guessing that a lot of you, when you're growing up, or maybe even still, because of where you live or your occupation, that you run into jokes that are ethnic-themed jokes. I was at a, a meeting of pastors in Healdsburg, up in wine country, and everybody was from the United States except for one young guy. He was from Latvia. And, he, you know, we're hanging out and, and having meals together and talking about starting churches and things like that. And, and this guy had gotten connected to the network somehow and had come out just for this meeting. And so we're all asking him, you know, where is Latvia? What is it, you know? And none of us really knew. Does anybody know anyone who's Latvian or Estonian here? You actually know Estonian? Okay, this is, this is good. This, okay, new. This is good. The fact that there are many hands up both is encouraging but also troubling for what I'm about to do. Um, <laughs> because 
um, I brought, so this is what he told me about Latvians. He said, oh yeah, in Latvia, here's something interesting. In Latvian, in Latvia, we, we have jokes about Estonians, that Estonians are slow. That's, the jo- that's all the jokes are around this concept. And I thought this morning it would be safe to tell a, an Estonian joke because no one would like be offended because it's very um, uncouth that I would do this. But I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to sin boldly before you. Um, so the jo- so the, the theme is that Estonians are slow. And in Latvia, it's safe to tell these jokes, apparently. And so this is how one joke goes. An Estonian stands by a railway track, and another Estonian passes by on a handcar, pushing the pump up and down. You've seen it in movies. The first one asks, Is it a long way to Tallinn? The other says, Not too long. He gets on the car and joins pushing the pumps up and down, and after two hours of silent pumping, the first Estonian asks again, is it a long way to Tallinn now? And the other one says, now it is a long way. <laughs> you laughed, I'm telling you. That's it, I had a couple other ones, but I'm, gonna, I'm, in, da- I'm in very dangerous territory here telling, because actually, that, you know, I'm trying to make a point, I'm trying to start it off just to say, you know, we all, in some way, we may have, we may have inside of us a rule somewhere that says you don't, you don't tell ethnic jokes, especially when you're standing up in front of church. You don't tell ethnic-related jokes. We have these little rules. We say, you, don't, you can't just write off those people in that. We might have those kind of rules, and yet somewhere in our life, somewhere we have this little place unchecked where we've, for whatever reason, given ourselves emotional permission to look at someone as beyond understanding. This week, you've probably had a conversation, you've whispered to somebody, you've called someone, you've texted someone, you've emailed someone, or you've just maybe only done it in the realm of thought. And and the idea of these thoughts or these emails or texts was, can you believe, again, that person or those people? And it may have to do with their stances on social issues. It may have to do with offensive behavior, like telling ethnic jokes in front of church. It may have to do with their selfishness or narcissism that just kind of you've had to deal with over time. It may have to do with their oppressively prudish ways or conservative views or their stingy handling of money or their excessive spendiness with money. In some way or another, someone in some sphere of your life, you've kind of, you've kind of let your guard down and said, it's safe there to to write them off. They're the Estonians, in a sense, in in your life. You know, it's fascinating how we can do this and how we cannot even see that it's happening. We cannot even notice that we've allowed ourselves that permission. I've been reading and just finished, actually for the first time in my life, the book To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, I mean, this is the first time in my life I've actually read this book. And so it better produce a few sermon illustrations, right? It was such a good book. And so the young scout is troubled by exactly what I'm talking about. When she sees in her teacher, her teacher stands up before them and gives this lesson on democracy. And she says, um, it's the difference between America and Germany, because a child has brought up Hitler and the atrocities of Hitler. So they're all against Hitler. And she says, we are a democracy and Germany is a dictatorship. Dictatorship. And she's teaching these young children. Over here, we don't believe in persecuting anybody. Persecution comes from people who are prejudiced. Prejudice, she says carefully. 
There are no better people in the world than the Jews, and why Hitler doesn't think so is a mystery to me. Well, this troubles Scout because she says eventually to her brother as she's trying to figure this all out, she says, well, coming out of the courthouse that night, she's thinking further back to the focus really of the whole book, this trial of a, of a black man who's sent to, to die. Well, coming out of the courthouse that night, Miss Gates was, she was going down the steps in front of us. You must, not, you must have not seen her. She was talking with Miss Stephanie Crawford. I heard her say, it's time somebody taught him a lesson. They were getting way above themselves, and the next thing they think they can do is marry us. Jem, how can you hate Hitler so bad and then turn around and be ugly to folks right at home? And there it is. There's the issue, right? And Peter has basically been doing this. Peter has given himself emotional permission still to write off the Gentiles, even though here's the really interesting thing. Peter... Ten chapters ago, and for us, this was like, I think, two or three weeks ago, we dealt with this passage where Jesus says to Peter and all the apostles, he kind of gives them their commission, he says, you will go out. And we dealt with that passage, talking about how we're kind of sent out to share what this Jesus thing is. We're sent to share in some way out into the world. You, you will go out and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after we read this passage today, it's clear that Peter, and it seems like everyone else, still haven't bought into that whole Samaria and the ends of the earth part yet, and are still, maybe they've interpreted it, well, yeah, we'll go to the ends of the earth, but, but still just to Jews. <laughs> you know, somehow they've just given themselves that permission to say, no, it doesn't really apply to the obvious thing that it needs to apply to. And you can see this playing out in our passage today. In the little part that we skipped, just for time's sake, Peter says, as he opens his speech to this house full of Gentiles, he says, you are well aware that it is against the law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or visit them. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? The, the current and the stream that Peter was swimming in and flowing with was so strong to not turn to the Gentiles. It's so strong, in fact, that when he returns from this visit, he undergoes an interrogation about his actions and has to defend himself for doing what he does right here. And basically what we see in the story is that we can be so um, inconsistent and so unaware of our inconsistencies that God has to act extremely powerful to wake us up. And he does with Peter. He has a dream, and during the dream, as he's coming out of it, he's confused, he's thinking about what it means. And then right when that happens, there's a knock on the door downstairs, and then God has to tell him, literally speak to him and say, go answer the the door, there's three men there. And you, you need to go with them. And on the other end of the equation, this is how much God had to orchestrate this, Cornelius has had a message from God that it was to send these people. Do you see how, on the one hand, how, how stubborn and blinded we can be in this, that we need that much intervention? On the other hand, how much God deeply is willing to enter in and intervene and to move us towards where he wants us to go, to open up all these little protected 
safe zones where we cannot share ourselves with everyone. And so that's what happens. And for Peter, it's really, it's really this message that's already right before him that he's preaching about all the time, just finally turning and applying it to those people for the first time. One theologian, John Stott, says basically that like, this is what this movement is all about. It's always turning us towards those people and applying it. He says, for Christ's kingdom tolerates no narrow nationalisms. He rules over an international community in which race, nation, rank, and sex are no barriers to fellowship. And when his kingdom is consummated at the end, the countless redeemed company will be seen to be drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So Peter needed this sort of God-led testing point where he turned and opened up himself even to them. There's another time where this happened uh, for a prominent Christian. And I want to tell that story and reflect on how it brings out, I think, what we need to hear in this and how we need to be taught by this passage. It was uh, 1962, September 28, and the Southern Christian Leadership Committee was finishing up a multi-day meeting talking about things, or Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Birmingham, Alabama. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was closing up the, uh, the last day of talks, and they had had nonviolent workshops and so he's on stage speaking. There's about 300 people there. They had, they had been intentional about saying it was open to everyone. They would not have in their meeting only, say, only blacks allowed, but it was open to all people to come into this meeting. And so Dr. King was, um, I'll just pick up from Taylor, um, Taylor Branch from his book, America in the King Years, 1954 to 1963. He was in the lulling drone of closing announcements, reminding the audience of major SCLC events ahead. When one white man, who turns out his name was Roy James, he's a six foot two, 200 pound man, who is a member of the KKK. In fact, he was what they called a lieutenant stormtrooper of the American Nazi party. And he was sitting in the sixth row. And Taylor Branch says, this white man man in the audience walked to the stage and lashed out with his right fist. The blow made a loud popping sound as it landed on King's left cheek. He staggered backward and spun or half around. The entire crowd observed in silent, addled awe. Some people thought King had been introducing the man as one of the white dignitaries so conspicuously welcome at Birmingham's first fully integrated convention. Others thought the attack might be a staged demonstration from the nonviolent workshops, but now the man was hitting King again, this time on the side of his face from behind, and twice more on the back. Shrieks and gasps went up from the crowd, which, as one delegate wrote, surged for a moment as one person towards the stage. People recalled feeling physically jolted by the force of the violence, from both the attack on King and the flash of hatred through the auditorium. As the assailant slowed, uh, 
rather than quickened the pace of his blows, expecting, he said later, to be torn to pieces by the crowd. But he struck powerfully. After being knocked backward by one of the last blows, King turned to face him while dropping his hands. It was the look on his face that many would not forget. Septina Clark marveled at King's transcendent calm. King dropped his hands like a newborn baby, she said. And from then on, she never doubted that his nonviolence was more than the heat of his oratory or, in, or uh, result of slow calculation. It was the response of his quickest instincts. This impression struck a number of others, including perhaps the assailant himself, who stared at King long enough for Wyatt Walker and some of the others to jump between them. Don't touch him, cried King. Don't touch him. We have to pray for him. Peter, in this encounter that we read, is living out a microcosm of the big story of God. Dr. King, in this story that I just read, was playing out a mini version of the big cosmic story that it, that it is to enter into when you come into faith in Jesus and join his community. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that bigger story. Because in the bigger story of God, you know, the question is, how do you, how do you overcome and turn at these areas in your life and turn towards the ones that you've decided you have all the permission in the world to write off? And how do you turn and then say, like Dr. King did, to the one that that whole room had all the permission in the world to write off? And you turn to him and say, don't touch him. I need to pray for him. How do you do that? How do you get there? You get there when you've entered into the big story. Because in the big story, and it goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in the big story, our role and the role that you're invited to enter into into the big story of God is the, the role of Roy James on that stage. That since Adam and Eve, we have jumped up in God's face and turned on his, his good actions on our behalf and lashed out at him. Lashed out at him out of trust, out of suspicion. In the garden, Satan worked his way with suspicion. Planting little seeds of suspicion of God's goodness. Is he, did he really say not to eat that fruit? Oh, he's, he's trying to keep you out of the God club. That's what's going on there planting seeds of suspicion that in all of our lives every day we're playing those out. We're playing out actions, lashing out at God that, are, that come from a place of not trusting his goodness and doubting his goodness all the time. That's our role in the big story. We lash out in the way we... You know, it doesn't feel like lashing out, but it is. Every day we lash out with all these untrusting behaviors. We don't trust God with our money. We don't trust God enough to follow him with our bodies and with our sexual choices. We don't trust God in how we make plans that are rooted in worry and fear. We don't trust God in how we um, 
in how we make career path choices, in how we carve out our time. You can make an endless list of ways we don't trust God with our actions every day. We don't trust his goodness. We suspect he might not be as good as he says he is. And our actions in the end become a way of lashing out at that goodness. We're the ones jumping up on the stage. We're the ones, as the Christian story tells it, when we see how that story moves towards God himself coming in Jesus. And as Dr. King put his hands down like a newborn baby, God himself enters into our world as a newborn vulnerable baby into our world of violence and hurt. And he eventually allows the lashing and the beating of our world to come down on him. And he drops his hands and he says, all right. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't try to get away. He receives the blows of humanity. Now the Christian story, this is the hard part, the Christian story invites you to see that you are right there giving the blows. You, that is a part of your story. That is a part, if, if, if you could have a window down into each and every one of your hearts and get the true picture, you jump right in there in one way or another to lash out at God's grace for you. And so what we see in Jesus is an awe-inspiring act, dropping his arms, letting the violence come on him. And in the midst of that, as he looks out at all the people that he legitimately, all of us know it's true, he could legitimately look out with, and condemn and write off everybody there. And his words are, Father, forgive them, for he does not know, they do not know what they are doing, and he is praying for them. What was happening on that stage in 1962, I'm, I'm saying, is just a copy, is just a, another version of the grand story that you are a part of. And in that story, God, on the one hand, there's two key things that you need to, to know and to do in order to enter into it. And the first is to, to admit and to view yourself more and more as the one lashing out. If you know that of yourself, then you know how to pray for those that you want to write off. You know how to turn towards those because you know you're the one that should have been written off. So one of the first steps is just to know your role in that story. Have you placed yourself in that story, that grand story with God? And the second thing is to stand awestruck, like all the people in that auditorium, to stand awestruck at the posture of God towards your lashing out. Are you, have you sat with the grace of God as he brings it to you amidst your brokenness? Have you realized that Jesus dropping his arms and praying on the cross is a prayer for you in all of your mess? Some of you tidy yourself up to come here, and you tidy yourself up in general in life a lot. I know, because I do that. That's one of my, my things. I want to look good for everyone. I don't want the vulnerability to show. Do you know that with God, he says, I don't care bring it, show me your true self, and I will meet you with grace. There's nothing to fear. Have you sat awestruck, dumbfounded at the grace that is before you that though we were sinners, Christ died for us? Those are the two ways to enter into this big story if you want to be transformed. See yourself as the right character in the story and stand dumbfounded and awestruck at God's 
long fuse in handling you. And, you know, it's... We have a lot of political correctness. We have rules that you don't tell ethnic jokes in church if you're the preacher. We have rules that... We have all kinds of rules about political correctness and about justice and about equality. We have all kinds of people that... In your affinity group, you're supposed to not say jokes or you're, you're supposed to reach out to, your heart is supposed to go out to them. The truth is, Peter had all those things too. He had, a cur- he had all kinds of different rules with his culture, but he had certain rules like that and political correctness as well. And what the gospel does, what this message of God does if you enter into the story, is it, it doesn't, ju- although those things might all be great, those political correctness, they might be a going in the right direction. The gospel is the one thing that can move beyond those cultural rules and look at the thing that those rules are ignoring. And that's the question today. You want the gospel to work in your life through this message. Find that place where you're not applying the grace and the story of God, the dropping the arms, the praying for. Who's that person or persons or group that you've had all the permission in the world and all your friends would agree you should write them off? Who's that? And if you're a person who's in a prayerful person, like Peter was, he was deep in prayer when all this happened. If you're a prayerful person, then watch out if you've identified someone or some group. Because in the midst of prayer, apparently God likes to direct us towards those people. And he just might do that in your life. Now, it might be someone in your affinity group. That's possible. It might be some, but it, for sure, for some of us, it's going to be for sure people outside of the comfort zone and outside of the affinity group. Are you ready for that? One more uh, To Kill a Mockingbird quote, and then we're done. I love this interaction when uh, the two children in the family, the Finch family, are talking, and Scout is talking to Finch. It's one of the brilliancies of, of this book, if you've never read it, is that everything's through the eyes of children. These observations are great. So the older brother says to the younger scout, Do you know something, scout? I've got it all figured out. I've thought about it a lot lately, and I've got it all figured out. There's four kinds of folks in the world. There's an ordinary kind like us, and like us and the neighbors. Uh, there's the kind like the Cunninghams out in the woods, and there's the kind like the Ewells down at the dump, and the Negroes. And scout says, What about the Chinese and the Cajuns down yonder in Baldwin County? He says, I mean in Macomb County. And then he goes on to talk about it. The thing about it is our kind of folks don't like the Cunninghams, and the Cunninghams don't like the Ewells, and the Ewells hate and despise the colored folks. Well, Scout is younger and a little more innocent, and she's not buying it, and eventually she cuts in and she says, Nah, Jim... I think there's just one kind of folks. Folks. Let's pray. Our God of grace, may we find the people in our lives who we have not allowed to be in that just one group of folks just like us. And may you do your work through your spirit to move us, not just individually in our private lives, but as a community. May your Holy Spirit work to move us towards places that we have maybe with no intention at all, but with every lack of intentionality kept away from. Lead us there through your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.